University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the book of Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 1. We are in our series, Rebranding. We're examining how we see ourselves and others. In reality, the way that we see ourselves matter, it directly correlates to the way that we see everyone and everything else in this world. Self-perception is one of the most challenging aspects of being human. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at what it would take to see ourselves in a different light. Such as, maybe not a person working out of a scarcity, but a person working out of abundance, seeing the ways that God has blessed us in our life. Or maybe seeing ourselves as, maybe not a person of weakness, but a person as strength. Seeing through God's eyes how we might see ourselves. And for today's conversation, we look at the book of Ruth, which is a tiny little book uh, right next to First and Second Samuel. It takes place in a period of the Hebrew people's story called the Judges, in which God raised up and called judges to guide the people through their troubles, uh, whether it was an evading army or idolatry. Ruth ultimately points to the arrival of the final judge, Samuel, and the crowning of the first king, Saul. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. And his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahalam and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to Moab to live there. There's a fascinating insight into what the writer is trying to get us down to in the text. First, we learn that there's a man named Elimelech, and he's got his wife named Naomi. They live in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And yet irony strikes in the first couple of verses because we learned that the house of bread is actually breadless because there is a famine in the land. And so like other people in this day and age, they left their home to go search for something new. They, they say that moving is in the top five most stressful events for a married couple's life. So add only to that the fear of starvation and having two children to care for. So suffice it to say, Elimelech and Naomi's story is not off to a great start. But we've all been there before. We've bought the t-shirt to prove it. We all, in some form or another, have faced hardship and disappointment, frustration, uncertainty, unforeseen and unwanted change, and along with stress and anxiety that come with it. And for some, it's been the loss of a job or financial problems. For others, it may be illness or poor health. For some, it may be a trouble of relationship or divorce. And for others, it might be the challenges within your family or with your children. And still for others, it could be catastrophic disaster to our communities and to our homes. And sometimes we're not the victims in a situation, but we've just failed. We failed to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to take the right approach, But the fact still remains that we all face hardship. But look what happens in verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there for ten years, both Mahalon and Kilion also died. 
and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech and Naomi's story quickly turns into a story of isolation and loss and grief and despair. The narrator tried to foreshadow us by by mentioning the two names of her sons, which one quite literally means sickness and the other son's name means destruction. Naomi is now facing the most catastrophic human experience, a mother to bury both of her children and to lose the love of her life, her partner too. Unless we forget that the women in the ancient Near East would, would have been powerless. Actually, according to custom, she would have had to wed Elimelech's closest relative or, or faced impoverished destitution. And she's not alone. Her, her daughter-in-laws also are in this exact same position. They're in a, power, a place of powerlessness. As I stated a, a few moments ago, we will all face hardship in our lives. But this kind of hardship can take a drastic toll on your life. Grief is one of the most unpredictable emotional experiences of being human. For those that have experienced it, you know at one moment you are paralyzed by loss, and the next filled with joy at the fulfillment of the one you've lost and the joy they have brought you. As, as one person put it, grief is never something you get over. You don't wake up one morning and say, I've conquered that, and now I move on. In fact, our bodies and our minds can take some pretty remarkable responses to this kind of hardship. The psychological and physiological responses to hardship and opposition and trauma and loss are, are quite incredible. Typically, the first effect is in general outlook on our circumstances and, and life. It's a spiral of negativity, and, and why not? We, if we are find ourselves in a place like Naomi, nothing seems to be going our way. And without realizing that these stressors set off a combustion of responses internally. Your blood pressure goes up, headaches mount, chest pains and anxiety elevates. And for many, our response to stress results in sleepless nights or overeating or undereating or not eating at all or balling up on the couch and consuming our minds with the worst possible nature of what we are facing. A drastic shift in our internal systems and our immune system begins to weaken. There's very real physiological and psychological responses that we have to hardship. I remember back in, in May of 2011, I experienced one of the most stressful seasons of my life. Jennifer was just weeks away from giving birth to our firstborn, Madison, and we were just weeks away also from telling the church that I was currently serving that we were going to be starting a church in the same town that I was living in. So in preparation for Madison to be born, knowing that I was going to be out for several weeks, I tried to get as far ahead on my work as possible, while at the same time working on a presentation to give to the deacons of the church to let them know that we were leaving this church to start another church. In the weeks leading up to Madison's due date, we were, um, we were trying our best to pull all this together, and quite literally, I was becoming a dad in two different ways. One was actually becoming a father for the first time with a child, and the other was giving birth to another church. And my body's response was quite perplexing. It began with a lot of sleepless nights, followed by a constant eye twitch in my left eye that I could not control and would not go away. And then the tightness in my chest began to build up. And I wasn't even the one that was pregnant. <laughs> and yet when Madison was born, the first night at the hospital, I slept like a baby. 
In fact, Jennifer had to literally throw things at me to wake me up because the doctor had come in to check out Madison and the baby to make sure everything was okay. Is there anything more embarrassing than to be snoring away in a hospital couch while your wife is wide awake after hours of labor? See, your body responds differently to stress. Skip ahead to verse 20. You can see the unforeseen effect it has on Naomi. It says in verse 20, Don't call me Naomi. They, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You can just feel the toll that this is taking on Naomi. And, and rightly so, she has now entered into the most, most detrimental effects of hardship, the toll it takes on one's soul. As spiritual creatures, there's only so much pain and hardship that our mind and our body can take. And soon the the calamity of this hardship seeps into the part of our life that no doctor can touch to heal, where no pharmacist can prescribe the appropriate medicine. There, There are all kinds of words to describe the spiritual response to hardship. For some, it's an acute loss or grief. For others, it's sorrow and despair. And still for others, it's melancholy and despondence. The Bible, in fact, gives us a glimpse into the toll it's taken on such a soul. It says, my bones suffer with mortal agony, the psalmist writes. Where is your God, they say. Where are you, you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Or as another psalmist put it, wake up, God. Why do you sleep? Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget the misery and oppression? We are brought down to dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Have you ever felt like this? And I have. I've experienced grief like this. I remember being in a sense of loss and uncontrollable weeping and other times sitting in stunned silence. I remember thinking and believing, I can't do this. C.S. Lewis put it this way, No one ever told me that grief felt like so much fear. Hardship has a way of of crumbling our physiological and psychological and spiritual well-being to the point that you feel like you just can't do this. You can't face this crisis. You can't face tomorrow. You can't even get out of bed. The phrase, I can't do this, begins in a whisper and builds to a deafening roar. When Naomi and Orpah and and Ruth lost their men of their lives, they also lost their social standings and their economic security. How could they survive on the edges of society like this? Then Naomi heard that back in Bethlehem, the famine was over. Bread had returned to the house of bread. And Naomi hoped that, that maybe some distant relative would take her back in, but she knew that Ruth and Orpah, young Moabite women, would probably not be welcome in in Bethlehem. The daughters-in-law began their journey with her, but certainly at some point in the road, Naomi told both the girls to return to their mother's house. They were still young. Marriage and children were still possible for them. For Naomi, the, the time of marriage and fertility and children and status were all over, and the best she could hope for was that somebody would take pity on her back in Bethlehem. Death had changed Naomi's life, and suddenly she was faced with a change that she didn't ask for, change that she didn't plan for, change that she did not like. Yet there she was, an unwilled change. 
In the biblical story, unwilled change forces not only Naomi and Ruth and Orpah who faced a big decision. They could return to their mother's house to comfort, to possibly finding another husband, to maybe producing children within their tribe. So Orpah made the logical and social and correct traditional decision. She turned back to go home. You see, dealing with change and loss is an inevitable part of our life. At some point, everyone will experience a varying degrees of setback, and how you deal with these problems can play a significant role not only in the outcome, but also the long-term psychological consequences. It says this in verse 14. At this, they wept loud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to the people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Verse 19 says, So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. For Ruth, the world had shifted. For reasons we are not told, Ruth decided to cast her lot with her mother-in-law, Naomi. I love the exchange in which Ruth declares, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. It's so poetic. In the ancient world, Ruth's choice was astounding. It was unusual. It was scary. Yet, In every generation, there have been men and women who, growing consciousness of God and God's intentions for their life, have done disruptive and things that go against the grain. What Ruth decides here is is quite powerful. She's saying to Naomi, we can do this. We can do hard things together. And they would face hardship. Returning back to Bethlehem, they would find that they were without the basic necessities of life. They had no food, so Ruth was forced to go out to the fields to pick the leftovers from what the reapers had left. And that's a humbling place to be, to be scavenging among the scraps of others. And their resilience was noticed by one of the more prominent landowners who instructed his workers to leave more unpicked grain so that this young woman could collect enough for her and her mother-in-law. His name was Boaz. And the story goes that Boaz saw the generosity and kindness and dedication of Ruth, eventually marrying her and restoring honor back to the impoverished and grief-stricken women's lives. What if I told you that we must do hard things? I'm not dismissing grief or stress or anxiety. These are very real human experiences and expressions. But what I want us to see this morning is that how we manage and deal with these things as they come. Doing hard things doesn't mean that a person won't experience difficulty or distress. People who've suffered major adversity and trauma in their lives commonly experience emotional pain and stress. A word we might associate with facing hard things is resilience, which is the ineffable quality that that allows someone to not be knocked down by life, but come back even stronger. And cultivating resilience is is necessarily to discard the belief that it is better to avoid obstacles due to the stress they invoke. 
for as psychologists are discovering, not all forms of stress are equal. Some, in fact, are crucial components of flourishing for your mind and your body. As one psychologist put it, the latest science reveals that stress can make you smarter, stronger, healthier, and more successful. It helps you learn and grow. It's almost as if the Word of God knew what it was talking about when James wrote this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be complete and mature, not lacking anything. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Whether the stress in your life is harmful or beneficial depends on how you respond to it. If we believe that the barriers before us are too burdensome and a threat to our well-being, that stress invoke is detrimental to our health. This is why I said we must do hard things. So let me tell you just briefly a few ways that I think you can face hard things in your life. The first thing we can do is to embrace what we are feeling. We see this from the example of Naomi in our story. She goes through tremendous gauntlet of emotions from fear to starvation to uncertainty to to leaving her homeland in search of fertile land, from the troubles of starting a new life in a new place to the elation of growing her family as her sons marry, from the loss of her husband to the insurmountable grief of losing her two sons, from the anxiety of knowing where her next meal is going to come from to the stress of trying to make a decision to return back home. And depending on where you were raised, you might be told that hiding your emotions or tucking them away or never naming what you're feeling is the best thing that you can do. And for many, we lack the emotional vocabulary to name and express what we are feeling. And yet all of our emotions are given to us from God. And if you don't believe me, Just read the expressions of God's emotions in the Old Testament alone, from joy to anger, from grief to sorrow, from elation to hopefulness. As one person put it, to spare oneself from grief at all costs can be achieved only at the price of total detachment, which excludes the ability to experience happiness. Embrace what you are feeling, because in your heart, in your mind, in your body, in your soul, way of it's it's your body's way of communicating to you. So process what you're experiencing. The next thing we can do to face hardship is to recognize God's presence within and around us. It might not have been the most self-righteous, religiously, politically correct expression out of Naomi's mouth in verse 20 and 21 when she starts telling people to call her Mara because God has made her life bitter. But at least she was recognizing the presence of God in her life. It's incredibly easy and natural when we face hardship to question God's presence in our life. If you don't believe me, just reread those psalms that I read for you earlier. But God wants us to be honest with God and what we are feeling. It can, again, because God created us with such vast emotions within us. But if we can begin to see God less as a chess master moving pieces on a board of our life and more as an active participant and coach and what we are experiencing, then it opens our soul to the possibility that God can supply us with what we need now to face hardship. I love how Paul put it in that famous verse in Philippians, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. 
This widely quoted verse has less to do with stepping up to the baseball plate and knocking it out of the park or giving a perfect routine on the balance beam. That's not what Paul is writing about. In fact, if you look at the context of these verses, it's quite eye-opening. Paul tells the Philippians that he is facing some pretty difficult times. Hunger, need, impoverishment, abandonment, and sorrow. And yet he has learned to be content in any and every situation, for it is Christ that gives him strength. God is with you, both in the times of celebration and in sorrow. God is with you when you're experiencing loss and grief and depression and uncertainty and fear and the deepest well of human experience and emotion. Can you believe, even just the tiniest bit, that God is with you and can guide you through what you are facing? The next thing we can do to face hard things is by relying on the support system around us. Naomi could have turned inward. She could have caved into isolation as she experiences deep sadness. A woman left all alone in her life. Later, Ruth and Naomi would forge their relationship as they ventured into Bethlehem. They would open themselves up to the possibility of allowing others to help them. In many ways, the book of Ruth is a story about the resilience of love and kindness from unexpected places. A word that repeats throughout the book is the Hebrew word hesed, which emerges as one of the most essential ways that humans engage with God and sustain creation. It sets forth this ideal of goals of, of, of flourishing, of mercy and compassion in our life. And through the acts of hesed, supported by acts of justice, When you treat someone like they are created in the image of God, when you respect others with the respect they deserve, that person can be restored in community. Hesed is is a gift given to us when we can experience life together as a faith community, but so often we isolate ourselves from others and choose not to allow the support systems in our life to be there for us. And you don't have to look far in your life to experience hard things with other people. For some, you don't have a strong family or friendship system. But if you journey with Christ, he's given us the church. The church is not this institution that we come in and out on a Sunday morning to experience a life together in just a mere fragment of time. The church is designed to be a community that supports each other. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter that The community is designed to be a place of compassion, to face hardship and shared experience by which we might share comfort and love and strength with one another. And and the last thing I want us to see in preparing to face hard things in our life is to hone in to your ability to face what is now and what is next. Within you is the strength and ability you need to carry through what you are experiencing. God has equipped you to understand and to work through our emotions, to process what we are experiencing, to network with others, to be companions with us, and to take care of our bodies when we face hardship. Yes, it begins with something as simple as getting enough sleep and drinking enough water and eating right and exercising, but it's so much more than this. As the Roman poet Seneca put it, everyone approaches a danger with more courage if he has prepared in advance how to confront it. Anyone can endure difficulties better if he has previously practiced how to deal with them, people who are unprepared can be unhinged by every, even the smallest of things. What's fascinating is that studies have found that our ability to do hard things actually improves our psychological and emotional and physical well-being. 
including experiencing more positive emotions and being better regulated to face negative emotions, less depressive symptoms and greater in resistance to stress, better coping with stress and, and boosting our immune system function and a faster recovery as we face medical setbacks. God has quite literally equipped you to face hardship and become better as a result of it. No one, including God, wants us to experience hard things. But what a blessing that the God of creation not only equips us to do hard things, but journeys with us as we experience those hard things. Can we trust God's wisdom and leadership? Or as one person put it, every difficulty in life presents us with an opportunity to turn inward and to invoke our own submerged inner resources. The trials we endure can and should introduce to us our own strength. Dig deeply. You possess strength you might not realize you have. Find the right one and use it. Let's enter into a time of reflection this morning.